0: Take out your Bibles, begin turning to Philippians chapter 4. This morning, we're going to be looking only at verse 4. You can find that on page 982 in the Pew Bible. I tried to cover all of 4 through 7 in one sermon, but I failed. I could not rush through these verses. Verse 4 acts as a sort of summary statement of the whole book. It needs thus our attention. Because here we come again to the central theme of the book as Paul begins to draw this magnificent letter to a close. And as he does, he repeats himself. And again, I say he repeats himself. 3-1. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. Only 24 verses later, 4-4. Rejoice in the Lord always again. I will say, rejoice. Back to 3.2, to write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. So again, Paul does not hesitate to repeat himself. So again, I'm not going to hesitate to repeat myself. We're going to talk again about joy because Paul does not stop talking about joy. He can't get away from joy. It seems like he can't help but talk about it. It seems like it must be really, really important that he keeps telling us. About it. So for the last time in this series, we're going to take a close look at the nature of biblical joy. And I know that I'm not repeating myself too much because I know how much I've continued to struggle to rejoice over the course of this seven-month series basically on rejoicing. We started way back on March 17th, and I then argued that the theme of this letter was gospel-generated joy. So for over seven months, I've been specifically studying joy. For over seven months, I've been preaching to you and encouraging you towards joy. But how much have I continued myself to struggle with joy in these last seven months? What about you? We started with a question last week. Who are you angry with right now? I hope you did something about that. I hope the answer's not exactly the same as it was last week. I hope you were doers of the word and not hearers only because Christians cannot continue in conflict. Well, let's start with a question again this morning. Pretty simple. Are you joyful? Are you happy? If I ask the people around you in your life, The people that best know you, the people that spent the most time with you, would they describe you as someone who is characterized by joy? I'm somewhat concerned about the answer to that question for myself. So I continue to need this reminder. I continue to need Help, rejoice in the Lord again, I will say rejoice. So the topic this morning is pretty simple. It's joy again, or the title of the sermon, just because I like the word, it's rejoice redux, which comes from a Latin word, which means to bring back, to revive, to revisit. This is joy revisited, joy repeated, because to preach the same things to you is no trouble to me, and it is safe for you. And it is safe for me as well. We're going to talk a lot about this. I've been thinking a lot about it this week. Listen, I, I struggle with joy. I struggled with joy this week. I, I struggled with joy this morning. I struggle with joy every moment, morning that I wake up because uh, I don't wake up a happy person. I'm not a morning uh, person. I would wager that most of you, to some degree, also struggle with joy. So let's revisit it one more time. It's nice and simple this morning. I hope to be simple. And clear. Three questions. We're just going to ask these questions from the text and then answer them from the text. Just what, when, and how. What? Rejoice. When? Always. What? Uh, how? In the Lord. That's all we're going to try to do. Are you joyful? Well, let's read and begin to walk through this short but profound verse. It's just one verse. I'll read it for you again. Philippians 4.4. 4, but this is what God commands you today. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. If you would please bow with me, let's let's go to the Lord in prayer before we begin. Father, I thank you for this day. Father, we thank you for the rainy weather. Father, we thank you for the opportunity now to sit under your word and to hear from your word. Father, help us. Father, I believe and and convinced that apart from Christ, we can do nothing. That includes the preaching of your word. That includes the hearing of your word. That includes the, the doing of your word. Father, help every single one of us now. Help me to be clear. Father, help me to... May be encouraged and rejoice in the preaching of your word. Father, help us to be encouraged and rejoice in the hearing of your word. Father, help us now to understand joy and the great joy that is held out to us and offered to us in Jesus Christ. Father, help us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. You don't have to be a biblical scholar to figure out what this verse is about. Joy. Rejoice. And just in case that's not clear, again, I will say rejoice. So it's a pretty simple and straightforward verse. But there are a couple of things that stand out to me about it. First thing that kind of catches our attention is the placement of the verse. Remember, we are now towards the end of the letter. We are in the concluding section of the letter. Paul is wrapping up. He has said this before, but again, he says, rejoice. And that's the second thing that stands out about it. It's about the repetition of this Verse. Not only the repetition of this theme throughout the letter, but Paul's repetition of it twice in this one verse for emphasis. So some will take this and argue that this is the main verse of the letter. That's a hard case, I think, to make definitively in a book with so many important verses. But the placement of the verse with this grand double repeated imperative after Paul has masterfully woven this golden thread of joy throughout the entire letter, all culminating in this verse, makes a pretty strong case for the centrality of four, four, for the centrality of this double command. And that's the third thing that stands out to me about this verse. This is a command. <laughs> This is an imperative. This is an obligation, which means that if you are a Christian, joy is your duty. It is your moral obligation to be joyful. God, through the Apostle Paul, is commanding you to be joyful. For you to not be joyful, then, is to some degree to disobey this clear and simple Commands, which means that in some sense, our failure to be joyful can be, I'm going to say can, can be sinful. So we have an important location, we have repetition, and we have its obligation that make this verse really stand out and demand our attention. So just like last week, Christians cannot continue in conflict or Christians must agree. This week, Christians must rejoice. So, what is it? What is joy? Let's start there. What does it mean to rejoice? Sixteen times in this very short letter, Paul uses some form of either the word joy or rejoice. Let's, let's do a brief bit of review. If you remember, uh, the Greek word for joy is kera, kera. Which is really significant when we remember and are reminded that the Greek word for grace is is keris. Kera and keris, two words built on the one same root. And we know hopefully by now that keris, grace, is unearned, unmerited favor. But not just unmerited favor, it is demerited favor. In other words, it's not just that we don't deserve it, it's that we actually deserve the exact opposite. Of it, Grace is God giving to us good when we actually deserve bad. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. That's what you deserve. That is what you have merited. You have earned death with your sin. You work hard, hopefully, in your job. You earn a paycheck. You deserve that money. You work hard at your sin. You earn a paycheck. You deserve death. The wages of sin is death. That is what we have merited. But, the verse goes on, thank God. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. That, in Christ, is what we get. You deserved death. God gave you life. That's Grace. It wasn't only unmerited. It was demerited. You deserved the opposite of the life. You deserved the death. God gave you the life. And so, if charis, grace, is God being good to us when we deserve the opposite, then this related word joy, kera, must be joy connected to grace. It must be joy because of Grace. What is joy? Quite simply, it's, it's gladness. It's, it's pleasure. It's satisfaction. It's happiness. But we find some sense of pleasure and satisfaction and happiness in all kinds of things. I will be wearing my Carolina tie next week because I am glad that college basketball season starts next week. I love this church and our Bible study so much that I'm not going to cancel Bible study for the first Carolina game. But if you tell me the score, there will be church discipline. I'm going to wake you guys up. This weather is reflecting your mood, I think. Wake up. So I take great pleasure in basketball. I take great pleasure in chip cookies. I am glad for my wife. I find satisfaction in my daughters. Uh, Though Melissa disagrees because I want another one. Um, She says I'm not satisfied enough. The point is gladness is good. Gladness can come from all kinds of things. That bring you pleasure. But that's not what we're talking about in the book of Philippians. That's not true biblical joy. That's why you must hold in your brain, especially as we start to walk through some of the difficulty of this. You must hold on in your brain to the connection between gladness and grace. Gladness and grace. Joy is gladness because of Grace. Joy equals glad for grace. God has been eternally gracious and good to us in Christ, and therefore we are glad because of that. We are content because of that. We are convinced that all is well in Christ. And so we've defined joy as a settled and glad conviction that all is is well even when it's raining even when the surrounding circumstances are far from well that's joy that's why we're going to close the service this morning with what's kind of been sort of our theme song for the book now, the new song we introduced months ago all will be well all is well all must Be well in living or in dying, all must be well. That's the joy that Paul is talking about. It's the settled conviction that all is well because of grace, and then being glad because of that grace. So, in the second verse of that song, we're going to sing happy still in God confiding. Joy is to be happy, but it is to be happy in God. Joy is gladness, but it is gladness because of grace. One, one commentator I was reading writes this. He says, joy unmitigated. And then check this word out. I had to look this word up. Untrammeled joy. I did not know that word. If you know that word, you're a lot smarter than me. Untrammeled means unhindered. It means not restricted. Untrammeled joy, he says, um, should be the distinctive mark of the believer in Christ Jesus. The wearing of black and the long face which so often came to typify some later expressions of Christian piety are totally foreign to Paul. So Christian, in this short and simple verse, you are commanded to rejoice. You are commanded to be glad. Paul is basically saying, hey you, be happy. That sounds kind of crazy, doesn't it, to us? But it gets worse. Let's keep moving. Because point number two. Rejoice, a command. Okay, well, when? You know, how much? In what circumstances? How often? Always. Rejoice. Always. Again, what? What? Next week, we're going to see Paul tell us in verse 5 to let our reasonableness be known to everyone. And we'll look exactly at what that word means next week. But in light of this command to rejoice, always my first thought is, hey, Paul, be reasonable. Because that's not reasonable. That's, that's insane. But this is not the only time Paul does this. Uh, 1 Thessalonians 5. This was almost a scripture reading. I couldn't decide. Flip to 1 Thessalonians 5. Uh, it's a two-word verse, page 988. It's like six pages to your right. Just go to your right, like six pages, 988. 1 Thessalonians 5. If you struggle with scripture memory, uh, start with 1 Thessalonians five sixteen. Rejoice always. That's it. And compare that passage to what we're looking at in Philippians real quick. Let me do a quick parallel. Uh, Philippians 4.2, remember we saw no conflict. 1 Thessalonians 5, 15, we see, Repay no one evil for evil, but always, there's that word again, always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. That's what you are called and commanded to do smack dab in the middle of conflict. When you're all offended and riled up, always seek to do good to one another. Challenging stuff. How? In part, Philippians 4.4. 4. Rejoice always. 1 Thessalonians 5.16. Rejoice always. How? Well, in part, Philippians 4.6. By not being anxious about anything. That's next week. Which of these commands seems more absurd? Rejoice always or be anxious about nothing. Well, we're going to tackle that next week. Well, how can we do that? Well, Paul's going to tell us prayer. Make your requests make, uh, make your requests known to God, come back for next that next week. First Thessalonians 5:17, same thing. Pray without ceasing. How should we pray? Philippians 4:6, with thanksgiving. First Thessalonians 5:18, give thanks in all circumstances. And then he summarizes in 1 Thessalonians 5: all of this. This is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. No conflict. Always joyful. Always praying. Always thankful. Hey. Paul Paul doesn't mess around. All right. Paul doesn't lower the bar for us this is no mere christianity this is what we are called to this is what we are equipped for next week we're going to trace this progression out in more detail and see how important prayer is to all of this right you can't have joy without the prayer but we're going to save that for next week then we're going to see how important the thanksgiving is uh to the prayer then to the joy and then how all of that is god's will for you and that's going to result in peace so come back for that next week. But right now, I simply want you to see that Paul does not in any way qualify the win of the what. It's rejoice always. And this is hard because we know that it's easy to rejoice when things are going well. We spent two days upstate last week with Melissa's dad and the Adirondacks. Man, it's, it's beautiful up there. way, did you guys know? that there's more to this state than New York City? I I did not know that. Uh, We've been here for about seven years, and our knowledge of New York is basically New York City. But it's, it's great up there. It's a beautiful piece of God's creation. I, I, I got a little bit hooked. Uh, we had a really good time. Now, we're driving back Wednesday. Uh, as I always do, I was listening to a couple of sermons on Philippians 4. I may have a slight tendency to somewhat err a bit on the north side of the speed limit. Um, I cannot use cruise control. If I do, I will fall asleep. Um, so if I'm not paying attention and the road is wide open and it's straight and it's downhill, which it was, I can sometimes get moving a little bit quickly. Um, so... I was listening to a sermon of this passage. The preacher read the text, and I got my headphones in because I'm trying to ignore the chaos back here with the girls. Um, He says, he reads it. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. And I look up, and there's the cop, right? He's right there. And you know what you do when you see the cop? You look down, right? You immediately check, 16 over. Mm, That's too high. Uh, That's not good. That's fast. Whoops. Uh, So I immediately said to Melissa, well, he's He's got me if he wants me. Um, and you know the feeling, right? You get a little hit of adrenaline. Your heart rate picks up. You slam on the brakes and hoping that he, by the time you actually pass him, you're only going five over, which is silly. Um, and, you, and then you can't take your eyes off the rear view mirror. Is he coming? Is he coming? Is he coming? Did he move? Is he pulling out? Is he coming? Is he coming? He didn't come. <laughs> so my response... Rejoice. <laughs> right. Rejoice in the Lord always. No problem there. Easy. I was wrong. I deserved to be pulled over. I deserved to pay the couple hundred dollars that I would have owed for my infraction. For whatever reason, he didn't come. Gladness. Right? I was pleased. I was happy. No ticket. But I had listened to multiple sermons on this text. I had just heard 4-4 four, four read again. I knew that I was wrong. I had no defense. So for the minute or two that I was watching and thinking and waiting for him to come, I had already started to, we're going to get to this, I had already started talking to myself. Because here's the test. Rejoice in the Lord always. Even when busted for speeding even when spending a couple hundred bucks you don't have, even when the stopping wakes up the baby and now she screams the rest of the time, I still would have been called to rejoice in that moment. So it's easy when things are easy, and we get it when things are going well. But that's not exactly what we're talking about here. It's rejoice always with no qualifications. What rejoice when always? Listen, I think, I think that sounds impossible to some of you. I think if you're being honest with yourself, I think that sounds impossible to some of you. I think it sounds unfair to some of you, because I know that it does to me sometimes. Uh, This is sort of off-putting for many of us, because we still think it's unfair to command something like, joy or that it's unfair to command something like an emotion. These things just happen to me. right? I just feel the way that I do. Don't tell me to feel differently. I can't help it. And again, I understand that because that's how I feel sometimes. Listen, I am not a naturally happy person. I'm just not. I'm not proud of that. right? This is not me boasting. This is me confessing. I don't know if I do that too much. I don't know what the line is in the pulpit, uh, some of you are listening probably, uh, if you've been here long enough, you're like, man, this guy's really awful. Um, exactly. I struggle with this verse. And so here's this verse that I'm going to have to stand in front of you and preach and proclaim while knowing that I also really, really struggle with this verse. And thus, I assume that at least some of you do as well. If you have no idea what I'm talking about, then great. Praise God. Um, but I think a lot of you Do. This has been a difficult study for me, a difficult sermon series to proclaim this over and over because I'm somewhat of a grumpy, moody, and mopey person. I just am. At, I really do love preaching and teaching. I get really excited about it, so I get all amped up. I talk quickly, I gesture wildly. Uh, so if you mainly know me in this context, or in the preaching context, or teaching, or you think I'm a pretty positive, encouraging Caleb kind of guy. Uh, extroverted, outgoing, uh, joyful. But, if you really know me, if you know me on Saturday afternoons uh, when my sermon isn't done, if you know me on Sunday afternoons when I'm done, uh, if you know me any other day except for this day before noon, um, I'm just moody and grumpy. And you can just tell. I'm quiet. I'm somewhat distracted. I'm not as engaged. I'm not naturally joyful. I know that. And... I hate it. I, I even I even know when it's happening, and I hate it. And you know what the least helpful thing is when I'm in one of my moods, and I know that I'm in one of my moods. Someone telling me to be happy, right? You've been there. That doesn't help, does it? But here is Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, commanding us, commanding me. Rejoice, not once, but twice. Be happy. Be happy. Always. So, if this sermon, if this seems somewhat crazy to you, then I'm with you. I understand. Don't assume that I've got this all figured out, that I'm some sort of joy genius. I'm not. I'm a fellow struggler. I've really been wrestling with this. I am not always happy, and I'm not happy With that, And maybe some of you are a little like me. Maybe you're a bit of a moody and grumpy person. Maybe the question at the beginning, would those that best know you characterize you as joyful or just get a big fat no and you know it? So what do we do? It would be so easy and it's so tempting to just stay here, stand here and say, hey, listen, be joyful. Jesus loves you. Therefore, you should be joyful. Uh, uh, It's sinful how miserable you are, so stop it. Get over it. Be happy. But I don't want to do that because I know how unhelpful that is for me. Uh, It's not helpful to me because I know how much I struggle with this, and I know how hard it is when you're not joyful and you're aware that you're not joyful. You're aware that you should be joyful, but then it just feels like there's really nothing you can do about it. You're thinking, uh, things are not going well. So I am not happy. So what, So where do we go from here? What do we actually do with this? A couple of things that I was kind of thinking through as I looked at this. I think part of my frustration, part of our frustration, is that we still don't really understand the biblical definition of joy. We're going to talk more about that. We don't get what joy actually is. And because we don't really, I think, understand the definition and the nature of emotions. So first off, we so often tend to think that emotions just are. We tend to think of happiness as something that happens to us. We are entirely passive in the process. We have no control over it. So when we think of joy primarily in terms of feelings and spontaneous emotions, um, we struggle because we're not exactly sure what to do with some of those things. But... Uh, biblically, that's not exactly how emotion works. Any emotion works, much less than joy. Emotion always arises from our beliefs. And I'll stake my I, I'll stake anything on that. Uh, whether you are conscious of it or not, I'm not saying you're always conscious of it, uh, much of it is subconscious, but your emotions always relate to and reveal your beliefs, your thoughts. Always, But we are so prone to think that happy emotions can only come from happy circumstances. No ticket. Uh, therefore, rejoice. Good circumstances. Okay, I can rejoice. But what about all the bad circumstances? What, what about all the difficult things that happen in this broken and sinful world? 4-4. Four, four, rejoice. Always. Paul is telling us that no matter what we feel, no matter what is happening to us around us, uh, we are to rejoice, which must mean that joy is something more than just a feeling, Boston, more than a feeling, um, which is really, really good news. Rejoice always. What about in the midst of great sorrow? First Corinthians 6.10. We were sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Paul, same author. Think about that. Two emotions that we pit against one another, that we think must be exclusive of one another. Sorrow, joy. He says, sorrow, yet joyful. So somehow, these two things can coexist. Uh, what about in the midst of affliction? 2 Corinthians 7.4. In all our affliction, I am overflowing with joy. So in the middle of affliction, Paul says, I have Joy. What about in the midst of trials? James 1, 2, count it all, joy. My brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Right? Trials are unpleasant things. James says, count it, joy. So sorrow, joy. Affliction, joy. Trial, joy. Remember the very first point of the very first sermon in this series, back all the way in March, was that biblical joy is a circumstance-independent Joy, And that's what we're seeing here. This is something bigger. This is something better than the good feeling that you get when you don't get a ticket. Or the good feeling that you get when things are going well. Which should be really, really encouraging and hopeful if you're like me. Because this means that it is possible to be joyful even when things aren't going well. And even when you aren't naturally feeling particularly well, it is possible to rejoice always. So what you are commanded to rejoice when you are commanded to rejoice always in all circumstances. Think about that. I, honestly, let's, let's flesh out what Paul is saying here. Cancer diagnosis. Rejoice. Job loss. Uh, rejoice. Divorce. Rejoice. Still sounds a little crazy, doesn't it? And how in the world can that be possible? And isn't it even cruel to say those things that I just said? Oh, you got cancer. Rejoice. How? How is the big question that we need to answer? Our third and final point. Let's keep going because here's the key part. Paul is not just telling you to rejoice. He's not telling you to suck it up. Don't worry, be happy. He's also telling you how to rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord. So let's clarify. When Paul says rejoice always, he's qualifying what he means with this how. Rejoice always in the Lord. So he's not saying cancer diagnosis. Hey, rejoice in cancer. No, not at all. Cancer is horrible, it's awful. We should hate it. We should mourn it. We should fight it. That's not what he's saying. Divorce. Rejoice in divorce. No, not at all. Rejoice is horrible. It's awful. We should hate it. Uh, We should fight it. Paul is not cruelly telling you to rejoice in the bad things that happen to you. He's telling you to rejoice in Christ in the midst of the bad things that happen to you. Rejoice not in those circumstances which are Awful. Rejoice in the Lord. Which means that joy, real joy, the joy that we're talking about here, the joy that we're all looking for, is found only in Christ. He is the source. He is the ground of joy. It is joy only in Christ. Christ. So you're only going to find it in him if you don't have it. It's because you tend to look for it in the wrong place. When I don't have it, it's because I'm looking elsewhere to, for something else to fulfill me and to find my joy in that thing. But many of us know this. I'm not telling you anything new. Rejoice uh, in Jesus. Great. Thanks. Uh, many of you still struggle with this. I still struggle with this. Well, yeah, that's because much of wisdom is not about learning something new. And I have to remind myself, I just read another book. Right, I'll, I'll, now I'll get it, then I'll have it, I'll understand. Just give me more information, uh, something new. Uh, like it's not generally how wisdom works. It's often more about remembering what we already know and then actually living in light of what we already know. You know this. You regularly forget it regularly and so here's the key it's it's pretty simple it's it's to remember it's it's 2nd Peter 1 9 for whoever lacks these qualities faith virtue knowledge self-control and so on whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins according to Peter Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Christians can forget and then live like they've forgotten that they were cleansed and forgiven from their former sins. Solution, remember. Just saying, come thou found. I, I was so confused. I asked Andy to do come thou found. I didn't realize that there were versions of it without the Ebenezer part. You notice that? Apparently we've always been singing. I wanted that song for the Ebenezer part. You know the line, like here I raise my Ebenezer. I looked in the hymn. Our hymn book doesn't even have that line. So I don't know the whole story behind that, but I was very confused uh, why we were singing. I was like, wait a second. Um, So this doesn't make any sense, Uh, but you know the line. Here I raise my Ebenezer, right, and come now, fount. And we all sing it. What in the world does it mean, (laughs) right? It always made me think of Christmas Carol and Scrooge. What are we we talking about uh, here? It comes from 1 Samuel 7, verse 12. Philistines were coming. Uh, Israel's afraid. Samuel offers sacrifices. God intervenes and rescues Israel and defeats their superior enemy. And then so Samuel sets up an Ebenezer, which literally means a stone of help. A memorial stone, a stone of remembrance, a reminder to help uh, the people remember what God has done for them. So what that song is doing, and I'm going to get that verse back into our version. I'm committed to doing that now. When I say, here I raise my Ebenezer, what he is saying is that you need to work on remembering what God has done for you. And then taking practical steps to help you remember and remind yourself constantly of what God has done for you. Which means you need to think about these things. And this is the key to rejoicing always. We're going to look at it in great detail in two weeks when we get to verse 8 and thinking about these things. We're going to just walk through specifically what that looks like and how I try to do some of that and how those who have gone before us try to do some of that. So that's coming. But as we've seen throughout this book, the mind and thinking is one of Paul's most important themes and regular encouragements. And this can be really, really helpful and hopeful if you are someone like me who struggles with joy, who doesn't always just feel joyful. You need to focus first on and change not your feeling, but your thinking, because this is how it works in scripture. This is how the Bible encourages you to pursue joy, to think rightly, because right thinking leads to right feeling. Consider a couple of verses, just real quick. I don't have time to defend this in great detail, but Romans 5.3, for example, Paul says, we rejoice in our sufferings. What? Why would we do that? How can we do that, knowing that suffering produces endurance, character, hope, etc.? Suffering's not fun, it's not pleasant, but we rejoice in the midst of it, Paul says. How? Because of what we know. Because we know what God is doing in and through this suffering. I just read James 1, 2, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. What? How? Verse 3, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, joy, and all these things, right? You know this, therefore you can face this with joy, right? This joy is directly connected to what you know about God and what he is doing. John 15, we don't have time. It's such a wonderful chapter. I am the vine. Abide in me. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Abide in me by my word abiding you. Abide in me by keeping my commandments. Verse 11, all of this, he says, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. See what Jesus just did there? He says, I want you to have joy. I want you to have full joy, my joy. So, I'm teaching you these things. I'm giving you this truth. I'm giving you doctrine about me. Know these things, think about these things, and you can have joy. Brothers and sisters in Christ, your rejoicing is directly connected. To your thinking. Right thinking leads to right living, leads to right feeling, leads to right rejoicing. And this is the how. Right? Christ is the how. Joy is found in Jesus, and joy is experienced in Jesus by learning to think and then live in Jesus. Change your thinking. The doctor is a pretty cool. Uh, nickname, uh, Pastor Martin Lloyd Jones. One of his more famous lines uh, puts it like this in his wonderful book uh, *Spiritual Depression: Its Causes and Cures*. I highly recommend it. Uh, uh, Jones says this: The main trouble in the whole matter of spiritual depression, in a sense, is this: that we allow ourselves to talk to us instead of talking to ourselves. Am I just trying to be deliberately paradoxical? Far from it. This is the very essence of wisdom. Have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? Talk to yourself, Martin Lloyd-Jones says. That's exactly what I mean by, by thinking. But what? should you think about? How do you actually uh, go about doing this? Again, this in great detail in two weeks, uh, but as a, as a fellow struggler with joy, I wanted to try to be a little more practical than I often am uh, this week. Uh, let me give you two of the things that I am constantly thinking about, and then let me try and walk you through a little bit of what that may look like. Uh, the point is simply rejoice in Christ by thinking on Christ. And so to do that, I am constantly thinking about salvation and about sovereignty. About salvation and about sovereignty. Let's do sovereignty first. Rejoice in Christ by thinking constantly and talking to yourself constantly about the sovereignty of God. This is not just dry, abstract doctrine to argue about. This is life-giving, if you can understand this. How can you have joy when things are not going well and you are not feeling well? Well, you need to know and rest and delight in the sovereignty of God, the, uh, the rule and the reign of God or the control of of God To say that God is sovereign is to say that He is all-powerful and absolutely in control of all things. What He wants to happen, happens, and everything that happens, happens according to His will. Sovereignty. Or, we could talk, as the Reformers talked, they didn't talk much about sovereignty. They talked a whole lot about the providence of God. And I've talked about this a couple times in this series. Um, But I keep talking about it because it's a concept and a word that we've largely lost. That didn't used to be the case. We used to name cities after it. Uh, Roger Williams, Puritan, uh, founder of the colony of Rhode Island, uh, and the first Baptist church in America. Literally, first Baptist America. And he named his uh, colony and then his capital Providence. It's important. People used to know that. So what is it? It comes from the Latin word pro, which just means before, and videre, which means to see, to see before. So literally, providence means to see beforehand or to have foresight. But providence is not just foreseeing in theology with God, it is for doing. God carries out and he executes. His sovereignty, His will, His plans. He does it first through creation. He creates everything, but then He doesn't just sit back and let it go. No, He creates everything, and then He sustains everything, and He directs everything. And that is God's providence. The Shorter Catechism says it's God's most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all His creatures. 1689 chapter 5, God the good creator of all things in his infinite power and wisdom upholds, directs, arranges, and governs all things. Nothing happens to anyone by chance or outside of God's providence. All right, so God's providence is his upholding and his sustaining of all things. And it's his specifically and intimately directing and governing all those things. That's that's his providence. What's the big deal? How does this help us? Well, listen to another wonderful Reformed uh, confession. This is the Belgic Confession on Providence, Article 13. It says, this doctrine gives us unspeakable comfort, since it teaches us that nothing can happen to us By chance, but only by the arrangement of our gracious and good heavenly father who watches over us with fatherly care, sustaining all creatures under his lordship so that not one of the hairs on our heads, for they are all numbered, nor even a little bird can fall to the ground without the will of our father. In this thought we rest, knowing that God holds in check the devils and all our enemies who cannot hurt us without divine permission and will. See what they're saying. They're saying that the providence of God gives us unspeakable comfort because it reminds us that he cares. Our father, our father, our father. Love being a father, not a perfect father. This is a perfect father who perfectly loves and cares for his children. And so he loves and cares for them and he's in control of everything that happens. And he has told us explicitly that he's bringing everything together for good, for good, for good. Melissa randomly shared a fun fact with me last week. It was that Bob Ross was a master sergeant in the Air Force for 20 years. Does anyone know who Bob Ross was? Does anyone remember? Some of you young people, maybe too young. I can say that now, I'm getting old. Bob Ross was a painter. Um, the mention of Bob Ross brought back very joyful childhood memories for me. My dad is a painter. Uh, his brother, my uncle, pursued it. If you ever go in my um, dining room, there's you'll see three paintings. Those are all my uncle. And I have one of my dad in my office. Uh, uncle's a little better than dad. No, I'm sorry. Uh, He's a professional. He teaches art now at a university in the South. So I grew up, I didn't get their skill or ability, but I grew up with an appreciation uh, for art. And back in the day, we didn't have cable, but over the air on PBS, Bob Ross had a painting show called The Joy of Painting. And as a child, I loved that show. The fact that he was formerly a master sergeant in the Air Force is a fun fact because if you've ever seen the show, Ross is the most soft-spoken and gentle guy that you've ever heard. He always talked about painting a happy little bush right, and a playful little cloud. He's just kind and soft-spoken. And what he'd do in this short 30-minute show is he'd start from scratch and he'd do an entire beautiful landscape in one episode. And I remember as a child even finding great delight watching that show because as it got started, it just looked like disorganized chaos. He'd do something over here for a little bit and it would just look like some scratches. He would just throw some darkness over here, and it didn't look like anything. But as this master worked, and as you sat back and watched, all of a sudden, with just like a couple of connecting strokes, everything would just come together. Again, I'm sure in the art critic's mind, this wasn't the highest quality of art, but in the eight-year-old's mind, it was brilliant. Similarly, my dad used to take us out, uh, each of us on dates every week, and we'd go to McDonald's. And as an art guy, uh, we, he would talk with me while he would also draw on McDonald's napkins. And I, some of my earliest memories, memories of delight and uncontrollable smiling and giggling as random-looking-to-me lines all of a sudden just came together into structure and organization and beauty. And this is how it is with God's providence From our perspective, we are the eight-year-old watching the very beginning of the Master's work. And sometimes, maybe right now, all you can see is the black. All you can see is the darkness or the scratches or the things that look like wounds or blights on the canvas. From our perspective, everything still just kind of can look like disorganized chaos. But if God is truly sovereign, then we know that it never is in the Master's mind. It's exactly what he wants. He knows exactly what he's doing. He knows why that thing is there and why that thing is there and why he let that thing happen and how that dark part and that scratch and that blight is going to perfectly come together into his perfectly designed masterpiece. Even as a child, though I never would have been able to describe it, there was a joy and a delight in seeing order Come out of randomness and seeing beauty come out of seeming chaos. Joy comes in large part by knowing and trusting the master and his plan. It comes by resisting the urge that we all have. To step back in the heat of the battle and judge his work in the middle of the dark part. It comes by resisting the urge of you, the eight-year-old, declaring that you understand the art. And by here, the art, we mean the, the creation, the reality, the history, your life, better than the maker and master of it all. And we've got to learn to rejoice by constantly thinking of and reminding ourselves of the sovereignty and the providence of God. Those circumstances, specifically ordained and sent by him. He's in control of all of it. And he's good, and he's gracious, and he's kind, and he relates to you as a loving father. So those specific circumstances sent to you by him for your good, even though you can't see it right now, even though it looks dark, it's only the beginning of the painting. Romans 8.28, though, we know that whatever those circumstances are, the master is going to work them into his beautiful and perfect work. So if you can't see it right now, and you often can't, you must then develop the discipline uh, of thinking about who God is and what He is doing, and then talking to yourself about it. This is listen. This is what I'm always doing. I may look quiet. I may look angry. Uh, I have RPF, right? Resting Pastor's Face. Um, I'm working. I'm working on not looking so angry all the time. Um, but by the grace of God, internally, I'm I'm battling. I'm struggling. I'm thinking, I may not always win, I'm still a work in progress, but I'm learning to do what the psalmist does in Psalm 42 and 43. I know that I'm not joyful, so I begin to think, to speak to my unjoyful self, as Lloyd-Jones says, why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Isn't it so wonderful that that's in the Psalms? Isn't it so wonderful that God gives voice to that feeling that every single one of us has had. Uh, so what do I do? Well, I speak like Paul I command myself hope in God Why? What well, we've just seen because he is lovingly sovereign and executing his gracious providence so I'm always talking to myself about the goodness of God and he specifically ordained this for my good help me Lord to trust you help me Lord to rejoice in what it is that you're doing Why else? What else am I thinking of and setting my mind on? Well, Psalm 42.5 gives us the ultimate reason when he says, Hope in God, my salvation and my God. And so secondly, we rejoice in Christ by thinking constantly and talking to yourself constantly of the salvation of God. We've said from the very beginning over and over that, that true biblical joy is circumstance-independent joy. That's correct, and you know what I mean. But as I was thinking about it this week and I was working on this sermon, I realized that it's also very, very important that we understand that true biblical joy is absolutely circumstance-dependent joy. In fact, it's because of our circumstances that we are joyful and can always Rejoice. Remember the very first verse of this letter Paul writes to and is addressing those who are saints in Christ Jesus. Brothers and sisters, that's your circumstance. But that is your ultimate, eternal, defining, identity-giving circumstance. When I've been saying that joy is circumstance independent, I hope you understand that I've meant earthly, immediate circumstances. Some of your circumstances are terrible. Paul was in jail, and yet he rejoiced. The Philippians had false teachers assaulting them from the outside and conflict in the vision assaulting them from the inside. And yet Paul commanded them to rejoice. Their immediate circumstances were awful, but their ultimate circumstances were amazing. Right? The the earthly circumstances deserved sorrow, sorrowful yet always rejoicing, but their heavenly circumstances deserve never-ending joy. And that's how you can start to rejoice. Always. It is by constantly thinking on and then living in light of your ultimate circumstances. By thinking on these things, by setting your mind on things above, you rejoice by thinking about your salvation. The good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ that you deserved death and hell for your sin. Sin should have been one of the things we rejoice by thinking about. Well, ironically, we already don't have enough time. But as you think on your sin and then think on Christ who came to take that sin and be that sin and die for that sin in your place, that's what begins to release great joy. That's why true joy can only be gospel-generated joy. It's only joy in Jesus, the Savior of his sinful, hell-deserving people. That's why joy must be based on grace. And so you must learn the practice of not just saying you think this, but by constantly actually thinking it. Are you constantly actually thinking it and rehearsing it? and talking to your self. Why so downcast, oh my soul? Put your hope in God. All right, Matt, you're in a funk. You're grumpy and moody. Why? Well, I didn't sleep well last night and I'm tired. Okay, you deserve hell. <laughs> Jesus didn't sleep at all uh, that last night. And he died and suffered that hell um, so that you would never have to. Yeah, that's a silly example, right? But, but what I'm trying to do is constantly take what my sinful self is feeling and is trying to speak uh, to me and then to just assault it and attack it with the truth, with God's word. Listen, you cannot rejoice. Rejoicing is dependent upon revelation. You cannot rejoice without the word uh, of God. And so what this thinking is doing, it's taking what is objectively true and revealed to you about God and about who he is and about his son and about what he has done for you and then just attacking your subjective feelings and experiences with what is constant, what you know is true. So I'm disciplining myself to submit all the dumb and false and selfish and sinful feelings and then submit them to God's good and life-giving truth. We fail to rejoice because we fail to think. How easy is it to go through a whole day and look back and say, have you even considered the things of God today? When that terrible thing that happened that brought you sorrow happened, was your first move to pray? That's what we're going to look at uh, next week. Did you actualize, did you utilize the means that God has given to you and blessed you by which we assault and confront and deal with these things that come to all of us? No, it's learning to say, oh, yeah, I go to church on Sunday mornings and I think about the gospel for an hour a week. No, it's learning to then take that and think about these things constantly. Pray without ceasing. What What does that mean? We'll look at it um, next week. So it's not just saying that you believe it, but it's fighting to believe it and in doing so constantly by thinking about it and so I have to constantly be examining my heart why am I feeling this thing tracing it back to what is false about that thing and what does God's word which is true tell me about that and how does that change my feelings or my circumstances or what I am sinfully and wrongly feeling and listen by the grace of God and by the work of the Holy Spirit God's living and active word it's living and and it's active. And it kind of slowly begins to do its work. And slowly, you know, I can even case as a non-feeler, slowly feelings begin to change. Slowly there is joy, there's, there's gladness, there's, there's pleasure, there's satisfaction. Oh, oh, he really does love me. Look at what he's done for me. In Christ, Look at what he continues to do for me in spite of my sin. Oh, I, I am glad in him. I had forgotten. I must remember. And I must think about these things to remember. So that's just my humble attempt to lay out what it actually looks like to rejoice in the Lord always. It's not perfect. I'm not perfect. Uh, but God is. And as a father, he is so faithful and kind to his children, to me, to to you. He is so patient and good to us. So we learn to, to rest and rejoice in him always by thinking on him. Always. Work on your thinking and trust God that the feelings will follow. Thinking of Jesus leads to rejoicing in Jesus by the grace of God. Man, I don't want to keep going. We got to stop. Christian, God has been infinitely and eternally good to you in Christ. Be happy in him. Be happy in him by remembering and thinking on who he is and what he has done for you in Jesus Christ. Bow with me and let's let's pray. Father, I'm thankful for your word. I'm thankful that you are so good to us, and to your children. I thank you that you are and reveal yourself to us as a father. A father who perfectly loves and cares for and pursues and provides for and comforts and encourages and teaches his children. Father, help us to delight in you. Help us to rest in Jesus. Help us to learn to find great joy in Jesus. Father, I pray for anyone who is in this room uh, who is discouraged, who wrestles and struggles with joy. Father, I pray that they would not be discouraged by this command to rejoice, but be encouraged that you so lovingly want what is good uh, for them, and that you would lead them to the goodness of Jesus. It would encourage them with the goodness and glory and beauty of Jesus Christ. Father, our words fail. Your word never does. Your word never returns void. And so we ask now for your spirit to do his work according to your word. Father, encourage us and give us joy in Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen.